Well, welcome back, everybody, to our Sunday night online service. Boy, it's been a full day. Two services on uh, Easter Sunday and the Good Friday service that we had. Thanks for joining us for our Sunday night. We're, uh, we're in a series, Soul Food, how we got our Bible and how to get the most out of it. Tonight, we're continuing with those four steps. If you look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that's the text we've been working with for a few weeks now, where Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. And then these steps for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That's what we're looking at now, that fourth step we started last week. Training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. So this is the second Sunday night where we've been looking at that fourth part of the process, training in righteousness, and I'm calling this study Living in God's Gymnasium. Try and remember where we were uh, last Sunday. It's important when you see some of these words, training in righteousness, that fourth step, that word righteousness, it's important to have, I mean, I guess you'd call it a, a theological understanding of the way that word righteousness is used in the Bible because it's used in different ways and we need to be clear on what Paul is talking about when he talks about training in righteousness. The word is profitable for training in righteousness. So I said last Sunday night that there were three different ways in which that word righteousness is used in the scriptures. And if you're, if you're not specific, if you get careless in the way you think about righteousness, I said one of the uses of righteousness in the scripture, particularly the New Testament, is negative and two are positive. And so we spent pretty much all last Sunday night looking at the negative use of righteousness, self-righteousness in the scriptures. And I said at that time that a careless understanding of that word righteousness in the New Testament, it leads a lot of people to the um, careless notion that what that word righteousness means is bad people get judgment and punishment and good people go to heaven. And in reality, the Bible teaches no such thing. The idea that bad people go to hell and good people go to heaven it fosters the idea, the false idea, that getting ready for heaven means uh, layering up as many good deeds as possible, piling up good deeds, quitting bad deeds, piling up good deeds, and that's how you get to heaven one day. Whereas in, in reality, here's how the opposite idea appears in the scriptures with this concept of self-righteousness. The idea is, the, the true idea is relying on good deeds, relying on good deeds is precisely what keeps people from going to heaven. That's the concept of self-righteousness, that proud attempt, leaving Christ, the cross, redemption, leaving that out, and just through my moral efforts, my sincere efforts, my religious efforts, my charitable efforts, through the piling up of good deeds, I'm getting ready for heaven when what the New Testament teaches is that's what's going to keep people from heaven. So you can see how important this idea of a correct understanding of righteousness really is. It's not some unrelated issue to our lives. 
it's related to eternal issues. So after studying the first three steps for transformation in our text, teaching, reproof, correction, we started off with training in righteousness, that fourth step. And I said that the the first way that that word righteousness is used negatively in the scriptures is referring to dead works, self-righteousness. And one of the texts we looked at was Isaiah 64, 6, where the prophet says, we have all become like one who was unclean. And all our righteous deeds, not our sinful deeds, our best deeds, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. This is in in the sight of God. We all fade like a leaf. Our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. But we're not yet done with our study of biblical righteousness. First, there's the negative use of the word. Don't rely on self-righteousness. That will keep you out of the kingdom of God. Jesus said that much to the Pharisees. But there are two more ways in which that word righteousness is used in the New Testament. Positive ways, and we need to have an understanding of them both. So we'll be able to know exactly what it is Paul means when he says this word is profitable for training in righteousness. So here's the second way the word righteousness is used in the New Testament. There's the imputed righteousness that comes from Christ. The all-important point here is is this. If God rejects self-righteousness, my accumulation of good deeds so that I can impress God and eventually go to heaven, if God rejects that, there's another kind of righteousness that he loves and accepts, and that's imputed righteousness. Paul talks about it in Romans 3. Get a Bible. Look at these verses with me. Romans 3, these are really important words, 21 to 24. You'll never understand this concept of imputed righteousness, the kind of righteousness God gives and loves without understanding these verses. 321 of Romans. But now the righteousness of God, and if I were underlining, you know how I do it sometimes Sunday morning, I'd underline those three words. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That's what Jesus said. All this Old Testament that God gave, it was about him. It pointed to Christ. 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. That's what he's talking about. For all have sinned fall short of the glory of God, look at these words, and are justified by his grace as a gift. You can see how that's the opposite of self-righteousness. 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here's another place where it talks about this kind of righteousness that God loves, the imputed righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus. It's in 2 Corinthians 5.21, and then I'll talk about these two verses. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, he, Father God, made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, look at these words, we might become the 
righteousness, that's the word we're studying, the righteousness of God. Now notice in the Romans 3 and the 2 Corinthians 5, the repetition of that phrase, righteousness of God. In Romans chapter 3, Paul says that God had always revealed his gracious intent to provide the righteousness that he required. That's that whole point. Remember the story of of Abraham being told to offer his son Isaac and he gets up there and he's ready to do it and then he sees a lamb and the lamb will be sacrificed. God provides the sacrifice. God provided the lamb. Last Sunday night, remember we saw how the Pharisees were of the same mind as there was this crowd who killed. Jesus said, you Pharisees are just like your ancestors who killed the prophets. The prophets came and said a Messiah would come, a Redeemer would come, and they pointed to him. And and these people so disliked the idea of not being able to accumulate their own righteousness and humbling themselves under the righteousness that God provided. They so hated that message, they killed the prophets just for talking about it. And Jesus said, you Pharisees, you're, you're just like that. People still do it today. There's a humility required in admitting that I just can't pile up the good deeds. I can't measure up. Just the attempt to earn my way is what brings the wrath of God. Imputed righteousness is a righteousness received. It's received apart from works through commitment to the historic reality and the present efficacy of the atoning death of Christ on the cross. Through that, we are declared righteous, Paul says, before the throne of God. And apparently no one, not even our own hearts, can accuse us or condemn us anymore because because God provides the righteousness and declares us clean. If you want to see that, they're pretty familiar words in Romans chapter 8. Hope you still have your Bible with you. This is a good time to study a little bit. Romans 8, 31 to 34 What then shall we say to these things? These things, he's talking about the accusations of others and our own conscience. What are you going to say? You need something to say to condemnation. Paul says, uh, 8.31, If God is for us, who can be against us? Now look, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give, notice the giving words, graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. That's the righteousness provided, imputed righteousness. That's what we're looking at now. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. So so make sure you see the connection of these important ideas. The only way to peace with God, the only way to freedom from fear, doubt, condemnation, it will never be providing your own righteousness. It will never measure up. It will be through the righteousness God provides through Jesus Christ. So negatively, last Sunday night, self-righteousness. Rooted in pride, rejecting Christ, I will pile up my good deeds. 
to earn my way into heaven. Never work, Paul says. Imputed righteousness. That's the second way it's used. Imputed, it comes from God. We don't work it up and offer it to God. God gives it to us in Christ. Paul says that's the only way to have freedom from condemnation and peace with God. So those are two ways we've looked at. I said there were three. Here's the third kind of righteousness. There's the righteousness of sanctification. Now, now you're coming to the kind of righteousness Paul talks about when he talks about the word being profitable for training in righteousness. He's not just talking about the imputed righteousness of Christ because you don't have to be trained in that. He's talking about the righteousness of sanctification. And and a lot of people get confused about that. I mean, if imputed righteousness, if it emphasizes the inadequacy of human works, which it does, well, it sounds like the righteousness of sanctification elevates the importance of works. And, and you feel like saying, so which is it? Is righteousness imputed or is there effort required on my part? And if there's effort required on my part, how is that different from self-righteousness that the Bible condemns? You see the issue as it starts to boil up to the surface. Look at Romans 6.19. I'm speaking in human terms, Paul writes, because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your, your members, you talk about this, this, this physical body, the deeds, as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness. You were slaves. See, uh, works righteousness, self-righteousness will never deliver you from that slavery. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, needing to more lawlessness, so now... Okay, so now Paul says there's something different. You still pursue holiness, but you're not slaves to unrighteousness like you were when you were trying to accumulate your own good deeds. That's not the case anymore. You've received the imputed righteousness of Christ. Grace came into your life. And so he says, now it's, it's not that you're slaves. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness. That's the word leading to sanctification. Or look at 1 John 2, 28 and 29. And now little children. Ah, so these are people who now have, through grace, these are people who have a relationship with Father God. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So, so these kinds of verses and others like them, they, they raise problems for many believers. In a nutshell, how can righteousness be both freely given, imputed, and rigorously commanded at the same time? And to answer those questions properly, we need to make sure we truly understand what happens at genuine conversion, born again, saved, whatever terminology you want to use. 
Conversion in the New Testament, you, you really must never reduce it to that mere decision of accepting Jesus. It's a phrase never used in the New Testament. I don't have any argument with it. I'm just saying it's, it's not a biblical phrase. Accepting Jesus is fine as long as we know that all that we are accepting and humbly follow the Lord and abide in the Lord as he leads us. So imputed righteousness, that kind that God gives, he provides. That righteousness, it cleans the slate of my sin and guilt, whatever my past was. It can no longer condemn me. It can no longer separate me from the presence of a holy God. God justly deals with my genuine guilt, not just guilt feelings, my genuine guilt in the death of Jesus on the cross. That was that 2 Corinthians 5.21 reference. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Now, that's a very blessed exchange. We should just continually rejoice in this marvelous grace. But grace, grace comes into my heart the way electricity comes. It's, it's productive. It makes a change. It makes a difference. I'm no longer a slave. Remember the Romans text? I'm not a slave to sin. There's been a, there's been new life given in divine grace. He did more than just change my record. He made a difference in my heart. God's seed, John says, God's seed comes with his grace, with that imputed righteousness. He puts, he puts in all of our hearts. It grows a, a voracious, love-driven hunger to obey God in everything, just as Jesus said, he lived to do the will of the Father. That's the kind of heart that imputed righteousness brings. It carries sanctifying righteousness along with it. Here are the key truths, I think, that we need to understand out of this theology of righteousness, if I can call it that. First, God calls all of us to forsake any attempt at pleasing him apart from faith in Jesus Christ. That's just ground zero. My attempts to please God apart from Christ, those very attempts are what keep me from heaven. Second, if I'm saved at all, it is only through embracing the provided, imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. My own works, apart from Jesus, are still, like the prophet Isaiah said, they're still filthy rags. They get me nowhere. And third, if free grace and imputed righteousness don't lead to a change of heart, then my reception of divine grace is questionable at best. I know that process doesn't happen overnight. I know that. But, but the direction of the Christian heart is settled with the reception of grace and imputed righteousness. I get that. Look at Titus chapter 2, 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So there it is, grace. It's a gift. Provided righteousness, imputed righteousness. The grace of God has appeared, providing salvation for all people. But look, training us, 
to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Now, just remember for now those two words, training us. The grace of God has come. You don't earn it. What does it do? Well, it cleanses for sure, forgives for sure. What else is it? It trains us. I want to talk about that now into the fourth point. Last point. We're almost done. How does the righteousness of sanctification grow in my life? Now we're back to that opening text that we've been studying for these few Sunday nights. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. I think we're ready now to look at it properly. All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and now training in righteousness. That the man or woman of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. So you can see right in the text that sanctifying righteousness, while it's not earned, it, it, it's involved in making us equipped for good works, equipped for every good work. So Paul is assuming in that fourth step, training in righteousness, Paul is assuming the proper place has already been given to the first three, teaching, reproof, correction. Hopefully all those things are happening even in this study. All those things happen. Insight comes. And then you feel the pushback, sometimes of your own desire. Reproof maybe is needed. What happens next is crucial. That word training in righteousness. That word training, the, the Greek word is paideia. And it's a word Paul uses when he talks, for example, about bringing up uh, children, Ephesians 6, 4, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's the same word, paideia. The idea in that passage is children, they don't make it with just instruction, there have to be structures, patterns, correction, practices, habits built in the ways of the Lord. Before the fall, all a child would need would be just information. Not anymore. Children, like all of us, when, when, when God wants to build something into our lives, he's working against something else. So in just that same way, none of us is going to be totally inclined to growth and righteousness because just because we know the truth. I can't just be educated out of sin. We, we will all love righteousness in principle, but when the pursuit of righteousness begins to cost my own self-will and self-rule, my personal pride at some point, well then growth and holiness, it can get pretty costly. Sometimes teaching and reproof, they need to sting a little bit before I'm ready to submit to training in righteousness. And so that's why Paul wraps up this process of, of ingraining the word into my life. That's why he wraps it up the way he does. Whatever God reveals of his truth, whatever he exposes of my sin, whatever he speaks in terms of his correction, I will need to be trained in that. I will need training in righteousness. So I need to come and bring my mind and wrap it around this truth. Nothing is fully learned in a study time like this. 
Hopefully we're exposed to the word, the truth of the word. If we're wise, we'll make a decision to obey the truth. James says we should always decide to act on the truth right away or we're just going to forget what we've heard. You know that passage. But, but those initial responses, they only, they only carry me up to personal training and habits of holiness. And nobody can do that for me. A lot of people quit too soon in spiritual training in righteousness. They make, or they make the mistake of assuming that because imputed righteousness was freely given apart from their own works, that sanctifying righteousness is going to be given the very same way. And it's not. And it won't be given the same way. In any area of sanctified living, I must, with the help of the Holy Spirit, train the specific area of righteousness until, until a holy habit gets formed. And even secular experts tell us that it takes about 40 days to build a good habit. All our habits are like that. Maybe, maybe some of you uh, wrestle with, with cigarettes or smoking, and you can look back and remember how awful that first cigarette tasted. But unfortunately, you stayed with it and built a habit out of it. You probably, this morning when you got up, you didn't think too much about putting toothpaste on your toothbrush and brushing your teeth. It's just a natural habit, but have you ever watched a three-year-old try to do it? It's quite an endeavor. Imagine what this would be like if people quit building habits in other areas of life in the same way that they give up on training in righteousness. I mean, we'd live in a world where no one would know how to tie his own shoes. Without the power of habit, you'd have to think through every time you got into the car. If there were no such thing as habit, you'd get in the car and you'd think, do I put the key in the ignition first or do I put the car in gear first? Is the brake pedal the long, narrow one on the right or is it the chubby rectangle on the left? What are the words, what do D and R mean anyway? If you had to think it through every time because there's no such thing as a habit. Oh, what a blessing good habits are. And this is what Paul is describing in that phrase, training in righteousness. Here, here's the final word from the Apostle Paul. 1 Timothy 4, 7. The exact same idea. Have nothing, 1 Timothy 4, 7. Have nothing to do with irrelevant, silly Myths. Rather, here it is, train yourself for godliness. The silly myths will tell you there's another way to be holy. That word train, train yourself for godliness. It's the word gymnazo. Gumnazo, actually. It's, it's the word from which we get gymnasium. Make no mistake about it. That's the only way sanctifying righteousness comes. You get into God's gym. You don't receive a prayer life. You build a prayer life. You don't receive discernment. You build it as you use and know the truth. Hebrews 5.14, solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained, same word, 
by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You, you won't shake some sinful habit with slight effort. God will give you strength. God will give you grace. But it's grace that works through you, not in spite of you. A lot of ungodly habits, we need to face it. They're going to drop off about as easily as the last five pounds of a diet. You, you have to go to the gym. And so, so the Bible says, sanctifying grace comes. There's the imputed righteousness of Christ. My sins are cleansed. Sanctifying grace comes. It will be this way through my whole Christian life until Jesus comes again. Divine grace comes the way electricity comes. It brings power to make things happen. So, so here's the difference. Self-righteousness, that desire to accumulate my standing for heaven apart from Jesus Christ. Self-righteousness is rooted in pride. Sanctifying righteousness is rooted in a changed will and love for Christ, love for his grace. It's, it's familial. We're children of God. Self-righteousness rooted in pride and a rejection of Christ. Sanctifying righteousness says, oh, he's provided the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. His seed is in me. I didn't deserve any of it. And, and all of a sudden, the power of love makes me not just pursue righteousness, but start to gradually prefer righteousness. Outward holiness, empowered by freely given divine life rather than bare duty. So, the next time someone asks you to help out in church in some area, Get your runners on and follow Jesus into the gym. He wants to make a really great Christian out of you. Let's pray. We're so thankful for times like this when we get to not just lightly read words, but establish their meaning, righteousness, the wickedness of self-righteousness, that brings the wrath of God. The divine rescue in imputed righteousness through the cross of Jesus Christ and the changed heart resulting in sanctifying righteousness as we grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's where we want to be. Keep us trusting, loving, following you. And even in these difficult times, that sense, Lord Jesus, that you're leading us along, you're working in our hearts, and that you're able to keep us from falling. We love you with all of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless the church. Love one another.